بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا وعظيمنا وحبيب قلوبنا وشفيع نفوسنا أبي القاسم محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين وأصحابه الغر الميامين الحمد لله الذي جعلنا من المتمسكين بولاية سيدي ومولاي علي بن أبي طالب الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله أما بعد يقول الله في كتابه الكريم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وإن أحد من المشركين استجارك فأجره حتى يسمع كلام الله ثم أبلغه مأمنه the first of our salawat in honor of Rasulullah Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. The second in honor of Amir al-Mu'mineen Ali ibn Abi Talib. The third with your loudest voices in honor of the Imam of our time, Imam Sahib al-Asri wal-Zaman. Respected scholars, brothers and sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The discussion concerning Islam and the position of refugees is without a doubt one of the most important contemporary discussions within the religion and a discussion that requires a thorough examination for it's a discussion from which many a lesson may be learnt and many an important example may be derived. A discussion with a historical base and a contemporary significance. Wherever you look in the world today, you find the plight of many human beings can be seen in oppression in different countries. The victims of this oppression are seen in being refugees. People who seek refuge in different countries trying to run as far away as possible from the tyranny that they see. A refugee seeks to look for security. They seek to look for asylum. They seek to look for shelter. They seek to look for protection. As in, at the end of the day, you wish for everybody to have the basic necessities of life that they all deserve to have a house. They all deserve to have the ability to educate themselves. They all deserve to have the ability to have food and water as basic necessities in life. Yet sadly, whenever we look in the news today, we find that there are hundreds of thousands refugees without these basic necessities, as in we may sleep in the night having something to cover our bodies. There are many without blankets in the world today. We may be alongside our families at home. There are many without their families anymore. Many who are displaced in the world today. When you look at Syria, you see how many children and how many women have been displaced because of the war in Syria. You look in Iraq and you see how many children were displaced from the north of Iraq.
You look, for example, in Pakistan and how many had to leave areas like Parachinar because of the genocide that the followers of Ahlul Bayt were facing. And it's not just the followers of Ahlul Bayt. If someone is a Christian or they are Jewish, Muslim or atheist, at the end of the day, everybody in this world deserves shelter, deserves a home, deserves a place where they are to be protected and looked after because the religion of Islam was founded on these principles. The religion was founded on the principles that every human being, irrespective of their religion, irrespective of their race, irrespective of their gender, should have basic necessities in life. They should be looked after. And when they seek refuge, you should offer them refuge. Yes, as in today, if for example I see in New Jersey, there is someone who seeks refuge, they are someone who has no shelter in the night. They're someone who is... Uh, a captive with no household to look after them. There's someone with no hope of asylum, no hope of protection. Then I as a Muslim do not ask them what the religion is that they follow. I as a Muslim say that when you are seeking refuge, you should be looked after. And if anyone should be working for the plight of refugees, then without a doubt it's Muslims because our whole history is made up of us being refugees. Especially the followers of Ahl al-Bayt as in, if you look at the history of the followers of Ahlul Bayt, there were times when we were in the Hijaz, and then we moved some of us to Iran, some of us to Iraq, some of us to Cairo, some of us went to India, went to Pakistan. I remember someone once coming to me and saying to me about Majalis, said Majalis should be in certain languages. I said, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kept on moving the language of Hussein from one country to another, Yes. As if you come and tell me a majlis should be in a certain language, you should do your historical research before you discuss. Anyway, so what you find is that the followers of Al-Muhammad, what they have is that we've been refugees for many years. We've sought refuge from oppression. For many years, we've seen tyranny in our own eyes. And that's why of all of the people in this world who should look to help the Syrian refugees, those who have gone to Hungary without knowing the language of the Hungarians, those who've gone to Turkey without knowing the language of the Turks. Those who've gone to Greece without knowing the language of the Greeks. It should be us who should go out to help them. And it's not like we're not going out to help them. MashaAllah, some of those who were my childhood friends in London are amongst those who've gone out to serve Imam Al-Hussein in one of the best ways that you can serve the Imam, Yes. Imam al-Hussein, you can serve him by what? You can cook food and you're serving the Imam. You can stand in the car park and sort out those cars, you're serving the Imam. You can give majalis, you're serving the Imam. But another way to keep the Husseini spirit alive is recognizing that Imam al-Hussein was a humanitarian role model, yes? Many of my childhood friends went to Greece, went to Hungary, the likes of Sayyid Amir, the person who is the representative of the Zahra Trust, he went towards Greece and he told me, he said, Subhanallah, we went to Greece and we stood there in Greece to help Muslims and non-Muslims alike. And we put the flag of Imam Al-Hussein in Greece. And suddenly we saw refugees coming saying that that is the Hussein that we've been looking for. Yes, followers of Ahl al-Bayt from Syria, from Iraq, from other areas, who are refugees in Greece, refugees in Hungary, refugees in other areas. You found the Zahra Trust went there. They provided them with support. And I think all of us who are listening to this majlis, be it here, be it on the internet, be it on the television, 
should all look towards the Zahra Trust. But not just the Zahra Trust. You find my childhood friend, Ali Shkar and his wife, Isra. Fantastic work that they've done for the refugees who've been displaced. You find the Twaj brothers, Ahmed Al-Qazaz, amongst others, Muhammad Bilal, all of them going to help. You find, for example, my very close friend, Mahmoud Khan and his sons gone towards Calais to help those who are in need. In other words, the followers of Ahlul Bayt, from their very origin, recognize that in the same way many of us were refugees in Hilla, we were refugees in Najaf, we were refugees in Tahran at one period, we were refugees in Baghdad. Likewise, we should look to help other refugees. That's number one. Number two, the discussion of refugees reminds us that we should always go down in prostration, thanking Allah when we have shelter in our own lives, yes? Because when I now live in a house and I'm now debating whether I should live in a four-bedroom or a six-bedroom, there are moments just to sit back and say, hold on, the competition of this world which I'm involved in, in some of these countries, that competition should be a competition I should just kick back and recognize that the fact that I have a blanket at home, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, yes? Because there are some of us who, however much we chase this world, we chase this world and we realize that sometimes a basic necessity like water can be the greatest gift given to a human being. Those children who have had to leave Syria or leave Iraq or leave other countries because of war, I guarantee you now they'll turn around to you and they say, you people don't realize how valuable a blanket is in the middle of the night, yes? That you can have a blanket to cover you. We don't even know if we can share a blanket between 10, 15 of us. That should make you spiritually wake up, yes? Because there's some of us, we're thinking, shall I go for a job? Five figure, six figure, this car or that car, this type of house or that type of house. Alhamdulillah, do that. Imam Amir al-Mumin says, live in this world like you're going to live in it forever. But prepare for the day of judgment as if it's going to come to you now, yes? Live in this world like you're going to live in it forever. But are you ready that just in case you leave this world, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask you, when I wanted you to follow Imam al-Hussein, it wasn't which one of you cooked the best food, done the best majlis, beat their chest the most. It was rather which one of you cared about the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Which one of you cared about those who are in need in this world? Those who don't have anyone in this world to care for them, for their refuge, for their shelter. And that's why throughout the Quran, the Quran is a book that is replete with words relating to refuge, shelter, security, and protection. If you look in the Quran, the word istijara, or the word ijara, or the word malja, or the word aman, all of these words, what do these words refer to? They all refer to security, shelter, and protection. In different ways, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tried to elaborate that if you really want to understand what it means to be a Muslim, then a Muslim is someone who always seeks to offer security and protection and shelter to their brothers in this world. Whether we like it or we don't, we're all one family on this earth. Do you agree? Listen, even if we put Muslim, Shia, Sunni, Buddhist, Christian aside, the reality is on this earth, we're all one family. The people in Mars see us as one family. Those in Jupiter see us in one family. Whatever else exists out there, see us as one family. Either we learn to protect each other or we will end up destroying this earth that we live in. Yes? 
Hassan. It's not easy to watch every day in the news. This person oppressing this people, that dictator oppressing this people. Why? Because this country has a proxy war with that country. And how about the woman? How about the children? So for how long are you going to have proxy wars with each other? Yes? You don't like that country. And that country doesn't like you. But there are children who are being orphaned because of this behavior. Therefore, the question arose, what was the position of the Quran and Islamic history on the position of refugees? Because I know there's many of you who come to these majalis. You want to show your non-Muslim friends. What is our position on this refugee crisis? Yes? Because many times when we give majalis, there are certain topics you can't give to your non-Muslim friends. But then topics like this highlight what real Islam and Muslimin are. Yes? Topics like this are what Islam needs to portray in the world today. Because the Hanities and the mayors of this world will never show a lecture on Islam and the refugees. They'll show a lecture Islam and terrorism, Islam and bin Laden, Islam and God knows who. But no one will show Islam and the position of refugees. But when you look within the Holy Quran and within Islamic history, you find the school of Ahlul Bayt is a school that welcomed everyone who sought shelter. Let's examine tonight the position of the refugee in Islamic law and ethics in the following stages. Number one, how is the relationship between us and Allah a catalyst in the way we should look after anyone who seeks refuge mystically. Number two, how did Allah remind the Prophet, you were at a time where you needed shelter and I offered you that shelter. Number three, which two family members of Rasulullah opened their doors to the refugees of the Muslims and the non-Muslims in Meccan society. Number four, when the Prophet crossed the border of Mecca and Medina, who was it that allowed him as a refugee to live comfortably in the land of Medina? Number five, can we give shelter and security to non-Muslims? And which ayah in the Quran did Allah tell his prophet that if a non-Muslim comes to you for shelter, offer them refuge and let them hear the words of Allah? Number six, is shelter only about a house and is refuge only about food? Or are there other means of refuge which Ahlul Bayt have discussed? And which member of Ahlul Bayt found himself without any shelter or protection in the land of Kufa alone? Let me examine this in order that I dissect this topic in complete depth. Someone asked the question about the position of refugees in Islam. The reality is every human being in this world is a refugee. Someone says, what do you mean? There's not one of us, but that we seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As in however powerful I become in this world, I'm a refugee. My shelter is Allah. My protector is Allah. The one who gives me security is Allah. Which one of us can walk in this world and say, I am the one who looks after my shelter. I'm the one who looks after my protection. I am the one who looks after all my needs. Allah, all of us, we recognize one thing mystically in Islam. The importance of understanding the position of a refugee in Syria comes in understanding humbly that you're a refugee and Allah is the one you seek refuge in. How many times in the Quran do you find Allah saying to us that believe you me, when you face dangers external to you or dangers internal to you, say, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْنَاسِ and Malik, and Nas, and Ilah, and Nas, 
and I'll look after you when you're a refugee. Because when we recite Surah Al-Nas and Surah Al-Falaq, do you know what we're doing mystically? Mystically, we're admitting Allah is the refuge and we are the refugees, yes? When I come to reciting Surah Al-Nas, I recognize one of my biggest battles is Shaitan. Shaitan is like that tyrant who's offering you no security and no shelter. When Shaitan is attacking me externally, internally, I come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I use one word, a'udh. A'udh is what? A'udh is a means of seeking refuge. However powerful I think I am in this world, I drive the fastest car, I've got the biggest house, I've got the most famous family in my country. Ultimately, shaitan, if he wants to in one second, will tell you, you know what, you're nothing compared to me, yes? So what do I do? I recite every morning, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ nas. مَلِكٍ nas. إِلَاهٍ Someone asked, why does he use Rabb, Malik, and Ilah? Why not use قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِخَالِقِ nas? Why is it Rabb, Malik, and Ilah? One of the opinions is Pharaoh called himself these three. And Allah showed those who thought Pharaoh is powerful. Even Pharaoh sought refuge in me when he was drowning, yes? Because Pharaoh would say, Ana Rabbukum, yes, Ana Rabbukum al I am your Rabb. Is there an Ilah other than me? I am your Malik, and there's no other Malik in Egypt. Subhanallah, when you were drowning, you realized you are a refugee and you sought refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From the internal enemy, I say, Qul a'udhu. From the external enemy, when we read Surah Al-Falaq, we realize as human beings, there are certain external enemies without Allah, they'll destroy me. Then what am I without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Qul a'udhu bi rabbil falaq. Min sharri ma khalaq. I seek refuge in the Lord from the evil that his creation has the ability to perform. Yes, not from the evil of his creation, from the evil that his creation has the ability to perform. Which evil? For example, min nafathati fil I ask, I seek refuge in Allah from those women who blow on the knots. Yes, in Arabia, these women, when they want to do black magic, they'd get the aqad, which means not, and they'd blow on it. That is a form of black magic. You know, many people read Surah Al-Falaq, I guarantee you they never knew the meaning of this ayah. And until the Muslims reflect on the meaning of the Quran, nothing will change in Islam. I guarantee you this, yes? Nafathad, I see these women in my community, they see you happy, they see you wealthy, they see you handsome, they see you, they see you. What do they do, some of them? Even, wallah, even if you're not handsome, they'll still do it to you, yes? You find that they come and they'll blow on the knots. Quran said, seek refuge, all of you refugees, in the Lord who will protect you from the blowers of the knots. Women sharri hasidin ida hasan. The envious, I tell you how powerful you are in this world. The envious, when they look at you, it's game over. Yes? The envious, with one look, that raise, you know, they got a laser between their eyes, which is a vicious laser. There are some of them, as soon as you sit next to the envious, you're like, oh God, I'm in the wrong place, yes? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you that sometimes you need to be reminded that on this earth, you don't own your sustenance. I control your sustenance. You're not powerful. I'm the one who's powerful. So never, when you see my creation are weak, never act arrogant towards them, yes? 
Because you, when you come to talk to me, whether you're sinful or not, I answer your prayers. How many times do you see people who make fun of Allah? Allah answers their dua, yes? There are atheists in this world. They make fun of Allah. Allah still gives and gives and gives. And so what do you find? You find that mystically speaking, Islam cultivated a group of people in the early days in Mecca who recognized that we're all refugees. Yes, those in Hungary, those in Syria, those in Greece, those in Calais, all of them are facing hardship. But first, a person as a Muslim to help them has to recognize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is who you seek refuge in. So never turn around the refugee. Secondly, your prophet, when he was an orphan, it's Allah who gave him shelter. Yes? Doesn't Allah say in the Quran, Alam yatiman fa'awa. Did we not find you an orphan and we sheltered you? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what was he highlighting when he said that to the prophet? The prophet's father died while his mother was pregnant with him. Yes? A couple of years later, his mother died. A few years later, his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, died. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was reminding the prophet, you know when you had no shelter, when your family was dying one by one, wasn't I the one who gave you shelter? Yes? Why did he say that to Rasulullah? To remind the new Muslims that when I looked after Muhammad when he needed shelter, now I expect all of you to look after your fellow creation when they need shelter. Yes? That cultivated in early Islam a lovely feeling. Why? Because the Muslims did not see Rasulullah as some man who fell from heaven. You know, sometimes these Arabs would say, where's the angels alongside you, Muhammad? Yes? Why did Allah let Rasulullah be born an orphan and not the wealthiest household to make him seem real to the people? Yes? When he seemed real to the people, the people could relate to him. And so therefore, in those early days in Islam, you found that the cultivation was there, that God provides all refuge, the holy prophet even needed shelter. And that's why from the beginning you would find the Muslims would say, Any, anyone who needs shelter, anyone who's homeless, anyone who's been oppressed, who doesn't have security, there were two doors to go and knock at. The door of Khadija and the door of Abu Talib. Subhanallah, no doubt. No doubt, no doubt. I tell you, the two most oppressed from the time of Rasulullah, Khadija and Abu Talib. Unbelievable. These two, do you know what they were? They were walking magnets of help for refugees in this world. That's what they were. When they would hear there is a refugee, someone who's in need of support, in need of some sort of asylum, some sort of security, in the middle of the night, they'd come and knock at the door of Khadija. You know what Khadija used to say in Arabia? She used to say that if anyone needs any help, never fear knocking at my door, yes? I don't have this thing of international border patrol. You people are not humans. You're low cattle. No, no, nothing like that. You come and knock at my door. Her servant would say at three in the morning, we'd have a door knocked. All of a sudden, I'd open the door. I'd see a woman crying and she has a bag in her hand. I'd say to her, what's wrong with you? She said, please let me in. Is this the house of Sayyidah Khadija? I said, yes. I'm a refugee. I'm seeking asylum, seeking security in Mecca. Why? Because of the fact that my husband, has, if he finds out that I've just given birth to a girl, he's going to bury the girl alive. Yes? Listen, who are refugees but victims 
of the wars of the hierarchy of a country. Yes? If you look at Arabia, these refugees, what were they? Abu Lahab, Abu Sufyan had a stranglehold on the country. The victims are the refugees. They have no one to go to. There is no one, no melja for them, no aman for them, no ejara for them. No one they could go and sit with. At 3 a.m., they knocked at the door of Khadija. So that servant said to her, okay, come in, come in. When she came in, she went towards Sayyidah Khadija. She said, Sayyidah, look at the position of Khadija. Subhanallah. This lady who Allah said is one of the four women of Jannah. Yes. She could turn around and say, I don't need no guests in my house. And if you're going to bring me guests, bring me people on my level. We have these in our communities. Yeah, someone turns around and says, listen, only those who come home up to our standard. Yes, if they're not that wealthy, don't bring them home. You're never going to reach Khadija's wealth. But you have to reach Khadija's humility. Yes. She opened the door. She said, what's wrong with you, young girl? She said, Sayyidah Khadija, where do I seek refuge but in your house? You are Amir at Quraysh. You are Tahira, the pure. I've sought refuge in your house. I'm looking for some sort of shelter. She said to her, come in. And the first thing you do, take that baby out of that bag quickly. She went. They supported her with that baby. And she would tell her, if you have cousins, other family members, who fear that because they've given birth to a daughter, they may be buried alive, then tell them to come to our house as well. Yes? That set the principle in Islam. Khadija. Who else set the principle? Abu Talib, no doubt. Abu Talib, how did he set the principle? Abu Talib made sure that when Rasulullah and his family were made to be refugees in Mecca, yes, Abu Lahab, Abu Sufyan, were not happy that Rasulullah was now spreading Islam, they put economic sanctions on the Prophet. Yes? Do you know what economic sanctions means? No one can interact with him. No one can cooperate with him. No one was to allow food to give him. They secretly had to bring food in. What do you think is happening now with the refugees? Some of these countries and the shame of all shames is the Arab countries. The Arab countries. This Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And all this nonsense, yes? The root of all poison on this earth, these two countries, yes? The root of all poison, these two. Of course, there's no disrespect to the lovers of Ahlul Bayt who may be from these countries in the crowd today. But I think you know what I'm referring to. These two, their sons and daughters come to the West, spend and spend and spend, come back to their communities, all religious, praying in the mosque, Yes? And you find their governments, where's your shelter towards these refugees? And someone might turn around and say, other countries, I'm going to come to those countries in a moment. You find that what happened was Abu Talib knew there's economic boycott. And these have it from that time until today in Saudi Arabia. They did economic boycott and there's a group of refugees. Rasulullah, Sayyidah Khadija, a few of the Sahaba. Abu Talib had a piece of land called Shaib Abu Talib. Yes, it was a vast valley. This vast valley, Abu Talib turned around. He said, everybody is welcome. You come here as refugees. If the Prophet doesn't have anywhere to go, no shelter. And believe you me, subhanallah, the relation. They had no food. Khadija, do you know how she used to live? She used to say, let all the children eat. I will eat the leaves of the ground. Allahu Akbar. Yes. And they tell me, as the poet says, and sometimes there are things I have to hold back from saying, actually, it's better that I don't say. She used to eat from the leaves of the ground. And when she'd eat from the leaves of the ground, 
until at the end she didn't even have a kefen long enough to cover her body. Yes, we say today a refugee has no blankets. I tell those refugees, the mother of Fatima died with no blanket on her body. Yes, Rasulullah, when he buried Khadija, he tried to have a kefen long enough for her. The kefen reached half of her body. Khadija dies. Why? Khadija could turn around and say, as long as I'm happy and Fatima's happy and my husband's... No, no, no. I'd rather be in pain and see humanity smiling. Allahu Akbar. That's the beauty of that lady. I'd rather be in pain. And that is Al Muhammad generally. They'd rather be in pain and see if someone sought refuge, kicked out of their houses, no shelter. Come, Abu Talib would say, come to my valley. Stay in my valley. I will give you shelter. Abu Talib could have sold his valley and made so much money. But a man who brought up Ali and Jafar, what principles does that man have, correct? And that's why the biggest hurt in this world is when Bukhari, the author of the famous Sahih, Sahih al-Bukhari, finds no problem saying that Abu Talib burns in hell. And Abu Sufyan is comfortably in Jannah. There's parts of our history, I promise you, and it, it breaks the heart, breaks the heart. I heard someone recently, you know what he said to me? He, we were discussing Hind and how she ate the liver of Hamza. He said to me, said Ammar, I have a question to ask. I said, what is it? He said, um, and he was from our brothers in other schools in Islam, yes? He said to me, uh, is it true that because Hind ate the liver of Hamza, because of the barakah of eating his liver, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided her to Islam. There is a hadith that says, there is a hadith, we may smile, there is a hadith that says, because of her chewing Hamza's liver, the barakah in Hamza being uncle of Rasulullah guided her towards the religion of Islam. But by that account, that also means what? That means Rasulullah's parents have to be Muslim because they carried the most pure in them, Yes. Because you know our brothers say that the Prophet's father and mother died kafir. Yes, died kafir. Abu Talib's kafir, Rasulullah's father's kafir, Rasulullah's mother's kafir. I don't know who's left. Who's left? Who's left? So you found Abu Talib, Sayyidah Khadija, they founded the meaning of offering solitude and offering sanctuary and offering asylum to all refugees. The question then arose that when Rasulullah went to Medina, you found, even when he went to Medina, you found the Muslims in Medina. Because Rasulullah was a refugee. Rasulullah was kicked out of his country. The definition of a refugee is someone who leaves the international borders to seek protection, asylum, or shelter. Rasulullah left the borders of Mecca on the night of Hijrah because they wanted to kill him. But the people of Medina were there. And I tell you, the Ansar of Medina... The legacy they left because they offered refugee and sanctuary to Rasulullah, yes? These Ansar, as soon as Rasulullah came, you see, one can have a habit of saying, oh, well, you know what, you are refugees. Okay, we'll, we'll help you with some paperwork. We're not really going to show you any warmth. What Islam taught was, if you're going to go to Greece or to Hungary, don't just go there and throw food at a refugee. That's an insult to them as a human being. Say to them, my house is your house. My food is your food. My clothing is your clothing. Because that's the ethics of helping a refugee in Islam. A refugee is not someone you turn around and say, okay, you know, I'll send a check. 
How much do these Iraqi children need? Okay, here's my check from America. That's good. But that has no heart. Yes. If there is a heart in that, it's in America. It's different when you take time out. Those names I mentioned earlier, they went to take time out. The Ansar of Medina, what did they do? The Ansar of Medina, they welcomed Rasulullah. Yes. Said, Ya Rasulullah. And all of the Sahaba, because you know the Ansar are the people of Medina. The Muhajirun are the refugees who left Mecca. They done Hijrah to come to Medina. The Muhajirun, when they first came, they were apprehensive that will these people look after us? We're refugees in this country. Because any refugee, the most difficult thing for them is coming to a land where they're a stranger. Yes? When a person comes to a land where they're a stranger, they have no friends. These children, four years old, when your child can go to preschool or kindergarten, go down in Sejud and thank Allah. Those children from Syria, they have to go to a new land. They don't know any friends. They don't have any friends. These Muhajirun, when they came to Medina, they were looking around. They were wondering, is anyone going to be our friend? Straight away. The first thing the Prophet did, he brought together the brothers, Muhajirun and Ansar. Yes. The second thing he did was what? The, Muhajirun, the Ansar would come to the Muhajirun. They would say, our houses are your houses. This is not our land. We are ultimately refugees and Allah is the owner. Yes. They would come. They'd say, our houses are your houses. Our clothing is your clothing. And then one of them, I remember, one of them said to Abdurrahman and Auf, and our woman are your woman now as well. You didn't need to go that far. Yes, Rasulullah looked at him. He said, no, no, relax. Okay, he said, you gave your house. So sometimes some of us wish that we can have, I, we'd all be refugees if that was the case. But you find what? You find no. You find, but that was the passion. The passion was instilled that Rasulullah built that early Medinian community that now that we've come, our houses, our food, our clothing, our shelters, that inculcated a beautiful spirit in the religion of Islam. That you know when people would come from Africa to Medina, when John, who is the servant of Imam Al-Hussein in Karbala, John, when he became a Muslim, why did he become a Muslim? He said, I came to Medina. As soon as I walked in, I'm a refugee. But they all welcomed me. They said, you're one of our brothers. Come, sit, eat with us. You're not different to us. In Syria, you may have been a multimillionaire. Things happened where there's a tragedy. Now you come and sit with us. Because I tell you one thing, my dear brothers and sisters. Never think that you're going to be in the same peace the whole of your life. I, my father says to me, in 1976, he was in Iraq, in Najaf, visiting Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib. He never thought it would be another 33 years before he returns there. Yes. Don't think that when you're in a place where there is ni'mah, Straight away say hamd and shukr. Straight away. Straight away. Because the Muslims in those early days never knew they'd leave Mecca. Rasulullah thought, I'm a Meccan. I've been brought up in Mecca. There's no way I'll leave Mecca. But subhanallah, at any second, Allah may make you leave a country if you don't appreciate the ni'mah Allah has given you in this country. And I tell you, us in this country, we have a great ni'mah. Wallah al-Azim. And here in America, we have a wonderful ni'mah. In America... I can come and give a lecture on behalf of Ahlul Bayt in peace and security. Yes, we can stay in this mosque tonight. I guarantee and all of you will agree till 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Whereas you look in Saudi Arabia by 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, shut the doors. Dubai by 10 o'clock, 10.30, shut the doors. Jordan, you don't even have an imam barga for Ahlul Bayt Yes, 
Alhamdulillah, that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why do you think so much of this country is blessed by Allah? Let's face the facts. You know, I will take my garb off and accept. This country, why do you think Allah gave them so much? Because they welcomed you in their immigration. You'd given nothing to them at all. And someone might turn around and say, well, you know what? It's a bigger political game. I don't need to go into that. The reality is, I'm here. It's Muharram. It's night three. I'm in a country which doesn't stop me from remembering Imam Al-Hussein. I can have Aza afterwards. I can have food afterwards. I can socialize afterwards. And I guarantee you the non-Muslims will be as appreciative as the Muslims. Yes? This type of ni'mah, Allah said, do hamd and shukr for. Because it could leave you if you don't. There'll be a day where it will leave you and you'll find yourself in a land where you don't know when the next majlis of Imam Al-Hussein will be read alongside you. Someone asked a legal question. Can I offer refugee, refuge or shelter to a non-Muslim? Yes, as in say for a Muslim, Khadija offered for Muslims, Abu Talib offered for Muslims, the Ansar offered for Muslims. How about a non-Muslim? Say for example, someone Jewish. Someone Jewish. Or say Hindu. Say someone who's a polytheist. Say someone who doesn't believe in a God. Buddhists. Yes. Can I offer them or no? Yes, of course. Not can I. You must offer them shelter. Yes. Because firstly, Amir al-Mu'mineen, salawatullahu wa salamu Firstly, Imam Amir al-Mu'min says people are of two types. They are either your brothers in faith or your equals in humanity. Yes? That principle, Mawla, lives until today. A person is either my brother in faith, they're a Muslim, they believe in La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulallah, or they're my equal in humanity. They may not agree with me theologically, but they also are lovers of good, are lovers of trustworthiness, honor, dignity, discipline, good human beings. You found Rasulullah at one of the most sensitive moments in his life. Open the doors to the refugees who are mushriks. In which way? There's only one surah in the Quran that doesn't begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Only one. Surah At-Tawbah. Yes, the rest all begin Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The reason Surah At-Tawbah doesn't begin Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim because these Quraysh kept on breaking their treaties of peace with Rasulullah. Yes. You see, the Quran is the only book in any world religion that begins with Allah's mercy. No other book. Quran is the only one. Allah decided there's only one surah, there's no mercy. And that is to those who broke the Hudaybiyah Treaty. Hudaybiyah Peace Treaty, one of the terms of the treaty was what? There will be 10 years of peace between the Muslims and the Quraysh. They've been killing each other for too long. Let's have peace. So they agreed, they signed. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib is the one who wrote the treaty with Suhail ibn Amr from the Mushriks. When did they write the treaty? Say, for example, in the fifth, sixth year after Hijrah, they wrote the treaty. There's going to be peace. Shortly after the treaty was written, the Banu Bakr of the Quraysh, one time in the middle of the night, ambushed the Banu Khaza'a Muslims and slaughtered them. We signed a treaty that there's going to be peace. They ambushed the Muslims and they slaughtered them. When they ambushed the Muslims and they slaughtered them, Allah decided there will be a surah revealed there's no rahmah. No more. No more. That how much more? When we were in Mecca, we were weak, you oppressed us. 
Now in Medina, when we were strong, we could have destroyed you, but we made a treaty with you. On top of that, you don't honor this treaty. And this is what Fox News uses the most in its verses on attack on the Quran. Why? Because the beginning of Surah Tawbah is vicious. The beginning of Surah Tawbah says what? فَإِذَا سَلَخَ الْأَشْهُرُ الْحُرُمُ فَاقْتُلُوا الْمُشْرِكِينَ حَيْثُ وَجَدْتُمُهُمْ When the holy months have passed, kill the polytheists wherever you find them. And surround them and massacre them. Someone says, look at this Quran, how evil it is. Which verse? Verse 5 of Surah 9. Why don't you tell me what verse 4 and verse 6 say? It's easy to pick verse 5. What's verse 4 and verse 6? Firstly, the context is there was an ambush behind a treaty. Any country in the world today, if America signs a treaty with another country and they massacre a group of Americans somewhere, there's going to be a war. Yes? But, number one, there's a context. Number two, verse four said what? Verse five is the vicious one. Kill them wherever you see them. Verse four, before verse five said, those who haven't broken the treaty, don't touch them. Yes? You don't go to the whole of the Quraysh and massacre everyone because one or two people did something stupid. Yes? Those who never done anything, you leave them alone. That's verse four. Then verse six, what did it say? Verse 6, after kill the disbelievers wherever you see them. This is after you've given them four months to try and, you know, come and ask for forgiveness. You found them. Verse 6, what does it say? If any of the mushriks, please understand this delicate point. If any of the mushriks, O Muhammad, come to you after this incident, and they look to talk with you and seek security, then let them hear the words of Allah and offer them security. Allah. What does this ayah mean? Some of these mushriks, what happened? When they saw the ambush took place, they were scared. Maybe we're going to get killed. Yes. But we're not the ones who done it. Imagine there was a, a good family living in Mecca, a husband, a wife, and two children. They're not the ones who ambushed a group of Muslims in the middle of the night. They feared for their lives. So what did they decide to do? They decided to leave Mecca or they come towards the Holy Prophet and they were refugees. They're mushriks. And the Quran says, When a mushrik comes to you and they ask you for help, then help them. Let them hear the word of Allah. What does it mean, let them hear the word of Allah? Because some of these mushriks thought Muhammad is a barbaric man. Muhammad spreading his religion by the sword. Muhammad's a liar. Muhammad's a magician. Quran said, when the non-Muslim comes to you for help, number one, help them. Number two, talk with them about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes? Tell them that you who've come here to seek refuge. Do you know what we Muslims say about the refugee? The way the refugee is your blood brother or blood sister. You should shelter them. You should give them the food that you eat, the water that you drink. Talk to them. The Quran said that. Why? Because the Quran was stressing on which concept? The concept that Muslim or non-Muslim, it doesn't matter. When a human is in need, your prophet opened the doors for those human beings. Because I may have someone, a Hindu, who comes up to me and they may ask for help. I guarantee you someone in our community will say, I'm sorry, I can't help you because Najasa. So what do you mean Najasa? Say, so, oh, he's Hindu. And the Hindu, you know, they say that the Hindu, because he's impure, so I'm not sure if I could talk to him. And maybe if they offer me, this is a refugee. 
This is a human being who has no home. What were you bringing Najasa and Najasa into this situation? A human being. You know these refugees who have landed in Greece. Some of them are on boats. There's 50 of them on a small boat. 25 of them die in the water. The other 25 survive. Some of those 25 survive is a young girl. Her dad's died in front of her. And you as a Muslim start saying to me, Najasa and Najasa, you as a Muslim above all else, as your humane traits come out, yes? Your humane traits come out, you talk with the person, you show them the love of Islam. The Quran therefore said what? When a mushrik comes to you as a refugee, you open the doors of shelter for them, yes? Never do you turn around and say only Muslims. A Muslim or a non-Muslim, when it comes to this situation, all of them are equal, like what? Like anything else. I remember the Khawarij used this ayah in a famous incident after Ali ibn Abi Talib and the Battle of Safin. The Khawarij, you know, ISIS. Yes, ISIS? No difference. Same. Long beard. Yes. And then you find him memorized Quran. Yes. But uses the Quran as he likes. See, after Safin, they hated Ali. They were former soldiers of Ali. They hated him. So what did they decide? They decided that they're going to stand on roads in Baghdad. History repeats itself. No difference. I'm telling you, no difference. Same areas, same. A person was walking, and when the person was walking, what happened? When the person was walking, this mushrik was walking, and he comes to a highway stop, and these guys stand there. You've seen them on the videos on YouTube. Long beard, up till here, and he's standing on the video, and, he's the, and they'll ask you questions about salah, yes? Because mashallah, he's become an angel on this earth. He's asking me about salah. So he's standing there, and so this person came. What are you? This is in Baghdad, yes? After Ali ibn Abi Talib had defeated. What are you? You have to show the ID. He said, I'm a mushrik. He said, okay, good, go. Someone turned around and said, why? He said, when ahadun min al-mushrikeen astajarak fa'ajir, hatta yasma' kalam Allah. If a mushrik seeks help from you, then you help them until they hear the words of Allah. Good. Abdullah, son of Khabbab ibn al-Arat. Khabbab ibn al-Arat was a great companion of Rasulullah. His son, Abdullah, was a Shia of Ali. Him and his wife, were pr his wife was pregnant. They were walking together. They came past this ISIS spot. Yes, the Khawarij. They were walking together. They came past the spot. What's your name? He said, Ab Abdullah. Son of who? He said, Qabab ibn al-Arad, Sahabi of Rasulullah. He said, what's your allegiance? He said, Shia of Ali ibn Abi Talib. He said, and your wife? said, Shia of Ali? He said, yes. He said, very well. Come here. Took him to the side, beheaded him there and then. Yes? They took the wife, they ripped open her stomach. Yes? The womb, this whole area ripped open through her and whatever was in there into the river. Someone came to that soldier and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm applying the Quran. He said, how? He said, when the mushrik comes to you, you see, they seek help, you help them. And when this kafir apostate comes, you kill them. Yes. This is the filth we have now in Islam. Yes. This is the filth. In Iraq, in Syria, this type of mentality of filth, of picking any eye of the Quran, of having no love 
for humanity, I tell you, if we don't remove it even in our own communities, we could become that one day. You see a Hindu, you see Buddhist, you see Sikh, when they need a home, you don't come and tell me I'm Shia, Ithna, Ashari, Imami, whatever, forget that. You are a human, they are a human. And every human deserves shelter. And that's why the Ahlul Bayt would say, a refugee is not just someone who has crossed international borders. A refugee may be someone who has seen zulm in their life. You see, a refugee is not someone who just left Syria or left Iraq or left Pakistan. Maybe in your own country, you may have refugees. In which way? They seek refuge from injustice to justice. What do we mean? Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen made Kufa a place where anyone who sought refuge from the zulm of Muawiyah could come to the adala of Ali. Yes? If you sought refuge from the zulm of Muawiyah, you'd come where? You'd come to Ali. Someone says, but that's not a refugee. No, you may be a refugee because you're leaving zulm to adala. You have nowhere to go for justice. You come to the door of Ali in Kufa. Two women came to his door in Kufa. Why did they come? The first of them came. Her family had accused her of committing zina. When they accused her of committing zina, she turned around to Imam Ali bin Talib. She said, at the time when they took her to Muawiyah and Sham, Muawiyah said, kill her. If she's committed zina, you have to kill her. They replied, have you committed zina? She said, no. Said, but you have a protruding stomach. It looks like you're pregnant. Said, no. Protruding tummy. Yes. Clearly there is something in your womb. Said, no. Said, what do you mean? Said, I guarantee you I haven't done anything. I promise you, if I've committed zina, Allah is my witness. I have qiyamah to answer for. They said, the fact that you're not admitting means you're lying, we're going to kill you. At that moment, she said, there is a man I wanted to seek refuge in. If he thinks I have committed zina, then kill me. Said, who? She said, the son of Abu Talib. He's in Kufa. I'm in Sham. I want to go all the way there. I want to see him. If he says I've committed zina, kill me. She got there to Kufa. She sought refuge in the house of Ali in Kufa. Imam said to her, what's the issue? He said, they've accused me of zina, and there is only one just man I believe in this earth. I've never met you, but the people talk of your justice. So he said to his companions, there was these female companions, he said, I want you to do me a favor, let her sit in water. It's freezing water, yes? And let her sit there, and we'll see. She sat, sat, sat inside, until eventually he said, okay, now let her come out. That protruding, what seemed like there was something in her womb, all gone. He said, I could tell that there was something small in there. Yes, like a leech in there that had grown. And that's why it looks like that your stomach was in that situation. Yes, it had nothing to do with you carrying anything in your womb. She said, Alhamdulillah, that I sought refuge in the master of justice, Ali. Yes, that was one. Then there was another who came, two women. They came, they sought refuge in Imam. How? They came to the Imam. One said, the baby is mine. The other said, the baby is mine. And they were both saying that the baby belongs to them. Imam Ali ibn Talib looked at them. He said, okay, which one of you believes this baby is theirs? One said yes. The other said yes. He said, okay, I'll cut the baby in half. And I'll give half to you and half to you. One of them then turned around and said, it's her baby. Imam straight away said, then it must be your baby. She said, how do you know? He said, because a mother cannot bear to see her baby killed in that way. Yes? 
And that's why whenever people ask me, why did Ali ibn Abi Talib not fight for his Khilafah if it belonged to him? Said because he couldn't bear to see his baby Islam cut in half. Yes, understand that. He couldn't bear to see Islam cut in half. Ali ibn Abi Talib knew, listen, one day there's going to be 700 million who call me fourth and 300 million who call me one and both of them will agree that they cannot be Muslim except by loving me. There are others who many hate and they have to live with that hate. But Ali ibn Abi Talib remains the only companion who every Muslim has to love in this world. The point was that in Kufa, Kufa became a source of refuge for all refugees. Anyone could come to Kufa, the house of Ali, the house of Fatima, the house of Hassan and Hussein. Those houses were houses for the refugees. At any time you want to knock, you want to ask for justice, you were able to find justice. I say to him, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, you made Kufa a place for refugees, but then your nephew Muslim bin Aqil walked with no refuge. Allahu Akbar, yes. Muslim bin Aqil, when he was in Kufa, Imam al-Hussein had sent him, he had sent him to go there to Kufa in order that he's able to carry the messages of those who have asked for Imam al-Hussein. You know, Muslim bin Aqil embodies the refugees in their most difficult moment. When he was in Kufa at the beginning, thousands. But then Ibn Ziyad had a stranglehold on Kufa. And when Ibn Ziyad had a stranglehold on Kufa, what happened? When he had a stranglehold on Kufa, many Shia were executed in Kunasa Square. Kufans who were going to join Imam al-Hussein were executed. Then there was Shia who were imprisoned like Mukhtar al-Thaqafi. Maytham al-Tammar until he was killed. And then there were those Shia who found it difficult to get out but got out. Habib ibn Madahir, Muslim bin Awsaja, others, they left. They managed to get out. But at the beginning when he was leading Salah, there were many behind him. By the time he finished his Salah, he turned around. There was three praying behind him. As he left the mosque, there was one. And then he walked as a refugee in Kufa. No shelter, no food, no one to even offer him a drink. May Allah never show you a day you're walking as a stranger in a town. Yes, the town that had loved his, his uncle was now a town he couldn't even find refuge in. And you know where he found his refuge? He found his refuge outside the house of this lady. He was standing outside there. <coughs> and he looked around. There's no supporter of Hussein. And to him, everything is Abba Abdullah. He doesn't exist. To him, everything is Hussein. Yes. And now he was wondering, how do I tell Hussein? But there was another thing in his heart that had broken him. His daughter Hamida and his wife were with Imam al-Hussein. You see, a father, if he's separated as a refugee from the children, it's difficult. Imam, Muslim in Aqil was married to the sister of Imam al-Hussein, Ruqayyah. And so he had a daughter from her called Hamida. Yes. And the thoughts begun now. Will I ever see Hamida? Will I ever see Ruqayyah? And how about Abba Abdullah? Does he know what he is in for? He stayed outside this house. A lady came out. Excuse me, what are you doing here? He said to our lady, I beg of you, I just want some water. That line would be repeated in Karbala by many of his cousins. Just some water. Allah. Whenever you drink water, remember the thirst of Muslim bin Aqil and the thirst of Abba Abdullah. Yes. 
He said, all I want some water. She went back inside to get water. Her daughter came out, young girl. She sat next to him. When the mother came out, the mother looked at the daughter. The daughter was sad. She said to him, what have you done to my daughter? Why is my daughter sad? He said, so I didn't do anything. She looked at her daughter. She said, what did he do to you? said, mother, he didn't do anything to me. said, then why are you sad? She said, I asked him, who are you? He said, I'm a stranger in Kufa. And a gharib, yes, I'm a stranger. I have no family, no friends in Kufa. He said, mom, he made me cry the way he said, I am a stranger. She said, who are you? He said, I am Muslim, son of Aqil. She said, which Aqil? He said, Aqil, son of Abu Talib. She said, you're the nephew of my master, Ali. He said to her, yes, I am. She said, come in, come in. Don't you know they're looking for you? The narrations mention he came in the house. She said, you will stay here one night. I offer you shelter. You're a refugee. You have no shelter, no protection. She said, but I'm worried because my family member may be the one who tells that you're here. That night, he knew was going to be his final night. He began to remember Rasulullah. He began to remember Ahlul Bayt one by one. He stayed that night. The news reached from her family member that he was staying in that house. He thanked her. All of a sudden, Muhammad, son of Al-Ash'ath, came with 300 soldiers. They came outside the house. May Allah never show you you're alone and you have 300 soldiers wanting to kill you. Yes? You found that they began to surround him. He came out. He fought valiantly. Muhammad ibn al-Ash'ath, he sent back for more soldiers. When he told him in Ziyad, ibn Ziyad said, I've already sent you enough. He said, no, do you think we're fighting one of the greengrocers of Kufa? We're fighting the nephew of Ali ibn Abi Talib, yes? They all came back now, but this time some went on top of the house. Some went from behind the house. He was fighting valiantly. All of a sudden a man struck him from the back of his head, yes? He fell on the ground. Another kicked him on the ground. Another now carried his body. They began to roll the body on the streets of Kufa, yes? They rolled his body on, along the streets of Kufa. His cheek rubbing on the ground in Kufa, yes? Then they carried him up to Umar bin Sa'ad and Ibn Ziyad. They took him to the top of the castle. When they took him to the top of the castle, Umar bin Sa'ad looked at him. He said, any final wishes? He said, I have three. The first one, I beg you, give me some water. Yes. The second one, give me an Islamic burial. The third one, tell Abu Abdullah not to come towards here. Yes. At that moment, they rejected his pleas. They took him towards the top of the castle. May Allah give all of you sabr. It's as if his eyes were looking towards Karbala and his heart was with Abu Abdullah. They took him towards the top. Ya Imam Sahib al-Zaman, may Allah give you patience at this moment. They took him towards the top of the castle and they beheaded him right from the top. They then threw his hope holy body on the ground in Kufa. One by one the people came and kicked the body of Muslim bin Aqil. Yes. Abu Abdullah was on his way towards Kufa. 
he had someone come to him. That person who came to him said to him, Aba Abdullah, I have some news for you. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Imam knew straight away. What did the imam do? He do something that he would do now for the next few days. He went, he started looking for Hamida, the daughter of Muslim bin Aqila. When he came to Hamida, he stroked her on the top of her head. Yes. As soon as he stroked her, he said, she looked at him and she said, Aba Abdullah, have I become an orphan? Yes. He said to her, why? How do you know Hamida? She said, because when you stroke the hair of a girl, it means that she has become an orphan. Allahu Akbar. He looked towards her. He said to her, Hamida, my daughters are your sisters. My sons are like your brothers. He began to cry next to at that moment, when he began to cry, who came to Hamida? Sukaina bint al-Hussein. Yes. Sukaina came. She embraced Hamida. She said to Hamida, do not worry. I will always be there for you. I ask you, brothers and sisters, who was there for Sukaina when Abba Abdullah lay on the ground? I ask you, who was there for Sukaina in the land of Kufa? I ask you in Sham, who came to look after Sukaina? <laughs> I leave you with this narration. When the family of Imam al-Hussein were walking through Kufa, when they were walking, Taw'a had a particular amana. What was her amana? Muslim had said to her, Taw'a, when you see Hamida, go and hug her and say to her that her father loved her. Yes. Taw'a came. She saw all of these ladies one by one. She came to them. She said, where is, the, where is Hamida, the daughter of Muslim? When she she came, she saw Hamida. She came to her. She was about to begin to speak, to give her the message. The poets say that Hamida spoke before she spoke. She said to her, Taw, I want to ask you one thing. When my father fell from the castle, was there anyone to carry his body? When my father fell on the ground, did anyone hold him and embrace him? Did anyone give him an Islamic burial. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Wa sayya'lamu alladhina zalamu ayyamun qalabiyyan qalibun. Wa la'natid da'ima ala al-qawm al-zalimin. Ya Allah, protect all the refugees that seek shelter in the world today. Muslims and non-Muslims alike. Ya Allah, protect the children of Syria. Ya Allah, protect the children of Palestine. Ya Allah, protect the children of Iraq. Especially the children of Iraq. Many of them who have found sanctuary with the lovers of Ahlul Bayt, alayhim salam Ya Allah, protect all of the children who now face difficulties in France, in Hungary, who face difficulties in Greece. Subhanallah, I'm mentioning all the European countries and I can't hardly mention any of our countries, yes? Ya Allah, open the doors for all those who seek shelter in the world today. In the name of Muslim bin Aqil, the stranger of the land of Kufa. We pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the Surah Al-Fatiha, but before it the loudest of your salawat. <laughs>